0: Do you believe that God is good? That doesn't sound very convincing. Do you believe that God is good? Are those just words that you're singing? Or are those truths that have gone from your head to your heart? Do you believe that? Do you believe that though we're in a world that doesn't feel good, doesn't act good, doesn't always feel that way to our worlds, that we still serve a God who is good regardless? Friends, we need to know that. He says, we've journeyed through the book of Romans, we have seen our condemnation night one, a group of individuals, all of humanity, in fact, that stood condemned before a holy God. And yet God is so good and so loving that he found a way to bridge that gap. He brought us back to himself through the person of Christ. Friends, because he is good, because he loves you and knows you and has accepted you, he brought you back in. And not only did he bring you back in, He actually imputed, he deposited things to your account. He put in there what you did not have righteousness and he took out what was in that account, which was sin. And that, friends, is secure because we did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. We have security in him. He is our rope. He is our assurance in the midst of storms, of life and tribulations that we no doubt, as Paul said yesterday, will experience and will go through. We have an anchor, as the song says, behind the veil that holds us firm. Friends, we need to know that because that is true. And we need to sing truth because I need it, just like you do, to remind myself of who God is every day. The gospel isn't something just invades our life at a point in time, it's something that we need to hear over and over and over that our God is good, that He has saved us, and He is in the business of making us, you and I, look more like his son every day, if we will yield, and if we'll allow him to do that. So as we think about where we have been this far, thus far, I want to ask you now to turn to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to do a little bit more scuba diving today. A little bit less rock skipping, maybe, as we have, as we're kind of going back and forth between these two uh, habits, so to speak. But today, we're we're going to scuba dive. And what we heard yesterday is this truth of we have security, right? There is nothing that you and I can do to lose our salvation. We are fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved because we didn't earn it, we can't lose it. So you're telling me, Mike, there's nothing that I can do to lose my salvation. If I have put my faith, my full trust in Jesus Christ, is that true? Yes is the answer that I'm looking for. Is that true? Yes. So there's no sin that I can commit that can supersede the grace of God. Is that true? There's no amount of sins that I can do that's gonna cause me to lose what I didn't earn or deserve. Is that true? Now, wait a second. Hypothetically, could that grace that we have been given, could that grace then be abused? Could I say, okay, God, I'm good. I put my faith in you. But boy, these things that I used to do for me, for 19 years of my life, they still called me. Could I still participate in those things and say, it really doesn't matter because I'm good. Your grace will always supersede that. Is that a potential reality? Yes, it certainly is. And Paul anticipates that question. He will say to this argument, that's a possibility. And the fact is this, there had better be a way that God can constitutionally, spiritually change a Christian from the inside so that we will be motivated and have a desire to obey. Because if he can't change the Christian's heart, it would be like giving unconditional pardon to a convicted felon. Can you imagine if we opened all the jails in California and said, everybody that's in jail, no matter what you do as we open these doors, you will never go back to jail. What do you think they would do? Would they go serve in a soup kitchen and love people? No, more than likely, they would go back to a lifestyle that they had known for so long because they know there is no longer penalty for those things. So we've got to find a way. God has to find a way to solve that problem. So if He's going to turn sinners loose, so to speak, no matter what you do saying you can't go to hell," then God must have a plan to change the heart of men and women from the inside out. And I want you to notice how Paul anticipates this rhetorical question in chapter six of Romans verse one. He says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Should we keep doing all the things that we have been prone to do as believers or now as non-believers now as believers? Because that's the conclusion. If I'm secure, I can sin all I want, and God's going to forgive me. And that's true, but that is not God's heart. So the logical conclusion would be, if I sin more, I just get more grace. Grace is a good thing, so that's a great thing. I'll just keep sinning. Well, Paul has a very strong answer to that in verse 2. He says, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? That phrase, may it never be, is like as close as you can get to like PG-13 in the scripture. Paul says, heck no, that is foolish. You don't understand what God has done for you if you truly have that disposition and that attitude. If you're going to go on in your rebellious state, that something has maybe failed to, to take root in your heart, that thing called the gospel, and he says this, how shall we who have died to sin, still live in it. Now, you'll notice a term that he introduces here that we're gonna have to deal with. That term is died to sin. He's saying that the Christian in his salvation has a now reoriented juxtaposition towards sin. This is a total change of how he feels or how she feels about sin. Now, up to this point, as we've covered this idea, we've only been talking about this concept of Um, being declared righteous as forensic, meaning its ideas passed down from a judge. But now Paul's going to move to the tangible, saying there is actually a real day-to-day outworking of righteousness in the lives of those who have been changed by the gospel. He's saying there is a change in the practical life of a Christian. In other words, can a butterfly go back to being a caterpillar? No, it is impossible There has been a fundamental change. It is impossible to go backwards. So being a Christian isn't merely being forgiven. That's part of it. But it's also being raised up with Christ. There's a reason why when we baptize people, we don't just hold them under the water, right? It's a sign, by the way, that they have died like Christ died, and they have risen to a newness of life. It's the idea of this. Can any of y'all right now put your hand on a red-hot stove. Can you? Theoretically, yes. Would you? No, because you know the consequences of such things. So constitutionally, you've been changed. There's an awareness in you that you would no longer do to that. You are dead to that is the idea. And Paul says in verse 3, let me explain to you what I mean by dead to sin. He says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... Have been baptized into his death. I want you to notice a series of words that Paul is going to begin to use, starting here in verse three. He says, "There's something you need to know. There's something in your mind that you need to fundamentally grapple with and understand." And then he's going to say, "Not only do you need to know this, you're going to need to consider it. That is going to take the longest journey on this earth. You're going to have to move from your head to your heart. You're going to have to consider what Paul is saying to be true. Consider it, reckon it to be." And then ultimately, you're going to have to present those truths with your hands. They're going to need to flesh themselves out in your life. So Paul says, do you not know? He says, by the way, there are two sides of this coin of salvation. Don't get confused here. We're not talking about, by the way, water baptism in verse 3. We're talking about identification. We're talking about being identified into not just the life of Christ, but do you see the words that Paul uses in verse 3? You've been baptized into Christ's what? His death. That's the two sides. You don't just take his righteousness and leave behind death to sin. So Paul's brilliant thought is this. When you get converted, you actually get converted. There is a newness of life. And in verse 4, Paul's going to say, let me elaborate on this idea. These two sides of the justification coin. The one side of forgiveness and the other side of rebirth. He says, therefore, in verse 4, we have been buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Christ was buried, and then he was raised. and It's the same with us. When he died for our sins, we died to our sins. Sin's punishment is taken away, right? It's buried, you're forgiven. We've covered that, hallelujah, right? That was morning number two when we understood that that has been taken care of, the penalty of sin Christ has taken on our behalf. But Jesus didn't just stay in the tomb when he died, did he? What happened to Jesus three days later? He rose from the dead. He rose, in fact, to a newness of life. That word newness does not mean second life. It means new life. It doesn't just mean that he lives again, but that he raises now to a completely new life. Was Lazarus raised to a new life? No, he eventually died again. He was raised to a second chance at the same life. So when Jesus rose, he was different. There was resurrection and glory. Now, in verse five, Paul's gonna illustrate what he just said. For if we had become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That word united, by the way, is a botanical term. It comes from the idea of when you have two trees, one tree is producing really good fruit, the other, however, is not. And what happens in those situations is you can remove a branch from the tree that is not producing good fruit, and you can actually graft it in to the tree that is. And because of the root system and the strength of that tree That branch that came from a poorly producing tree will now produce good fruit. That is what it means here. We have become grafted into Christ. We have been united with him. He is the source of our salvation. It's a graft that you and I partake in in his life. Verse 5 says, if we have been in the likeness of his death. Now, is that a fact? Yes, yes. His death to sin is our death to sin. The judgments of sin have been removed from you and I. They have been nailed to the cross. But in verse 5, that verse isn't over, is it? He says, we most certainly will. Can we have one without the other? Can you have justification and forgiveness without a newness of life? Paul says, no, they are two sides to the exact same coin. You can no longer, no more, I should say, be a Christian and not have a new life, then you can be engrafted into a tree and still bear old fruit. It's just an impossibility. It does not work that way. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean that sin in your life stops. That's not what Paul's saying here. But he is saying that to the child that is mine, it means that you sin differently. There is a conviction. There is a sense of, I want to obey God out of a heart level. He says now in verse 6, let me apply. And again, here's what we're going to see another word that he is harping on in verse six. Knowing this, again, know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He says, Know this. There's something else that we need to know. And I want you to notice what he calls our old self, who we used to be. Before the cross, he says it is a body of corruption. And what does he say happened to it? He says, it is done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, notice in this verse what Paul didn't say. This is important. Did he say, as Christians, that we no longer sin? No. What did he say? We are no longer, what's the text say? Slaves to sin. Those are two very different things. Paul's not asserting that as Christians, we arrive at some place of sinless perfection, where we just stop sinning. Lord, I hope not, because I've been walking with Jesus for 26 years, and that day has not occurred in my life. Uh, Maybe I'm the only one here that still sins, so this message is more for me than anybody else, but probably not. My guess is that you struggle with the continual presence and idea of sin in your life, just as I do, But Paul says something profound here. We are no longer slaves to sin. Remember, that's the two sides of the coin of salvation, both forgiveness and a newness of life. So Paul introduces this idea here that he's gonna spend the rest of our time up to verse 14 unpacking. What in the world then does Paul mean when he says, you and I, when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, are no longer slaves to sin. This concept is essential for us to understand. He says sin is still a reality, and it's still a recurrence in the lives of believers. We're just not slaves anymore. Slaves, by the way, has the idea of having a master that controls someone. Paul says through Christ's resurrection, you have been freed from the power of sin. When I was in high school, I played soccer for four years at Plano Senior High School in Texas, and my coach, his name was David Blakely, Coach Blakely. Coach Blakely knew nothing about soccer. (laughs) He was a football coach that came over to coach us. He's one of the most respected coaches I've ever had in all of my career playing athletics. But do you know from my freshman year to my senior year what I was to him? I was, in a sense, a slave. You know why? because he was my master. He said, Mike, we got practice. It's 6 a.m. You better be here at 5.50, ready to go. And I said, sir, yes, sir. He said, Mike, during the season, we have two a days. You're going to show up at 6, and then you're going to show up again at 3.30, and we're going to practice for four hours a day. And you know what I said? Sir, yes, sir. And for four years of my life, he had complete control over my athletic career in my athletic life. He was, in a sense, a master over me. But do you know what happened one day? My senior year in the spring, in May, you know what I did? I graduated. And do you know what happened in that moment between me and Coach Blakely? That mastery that he had in my life came to an end. He was still very much there He's still very much present. In fact, he could pick up the phone a year later and say, hey, Mike, we got practice at 6 a.m., and hypothetically, I could show up on that field now as a freshman in college and go play with the freshmen and the juniors and the seniors and the sophomores on the high school soccer team, but you would say to me what? Mike, why would you do that? You've been freed from his mastery. You've been progressed from that. You have moved on. He's still there. You could go do that, but you no longer have to for four years of your life, he was your master, but he is no longer. Do you see the picture that Paul is beginning to paint for it? We'll talk more about this in detail in verses 11 through 14, but again, what I want you to see is there's not a command here. Paul's not asking us to do anything. He's simply saying, this is something I need you to know. This is a reality of what the gospel has done in your life and in my life as well. We have been freed from the mastery, from the power of sin. And he goes on now here in verse seven to walk through that and what that actually means. For he who has died is freed from sin. Again, not the presence of sin. Coach Blakely did not die. He is still very much around, but I was freed from my mastery or his mastery over me. I am no longer, to use that word again, his slave. In the same way, with the gospel it said, Paul says, there used to be a king that ruled over us. We were under sin, but we have been freed from that mastery. Now watch this in verses eight through 10. Paul's going to give you a summary creed of everything that he said so far in chapter six. Look at verse eight with me. Now, if we have died to Christ, meaning we have, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Paul begins now and starts to tell us a few things about what we believe here. The first one has to do with our past. Do you see it there? we have died with Christ. That is a past event that saved us. The second one there speaks to a future result. We shall live. This is important because in the context of the next couple of verses, Paul tells us what it means to, to live with him, that we will literally eventually live in heaven with God, with Christ. So that is the future with Jesus. And he's going to come back ultimately and not die again. It says he, do, he died for sin once for all, uh, that resurrected life that he now lives, he lives to God. So our presence with Christ will be again, as we mentioned yesterday, forever. So if we have died to Christ, the same will be true with us. But what are we to do with the now? You're saying, okay, great, Mike. I, I've been forgiven. I've learned that I'm not a slave to sin anymore. There's a new life within me. But question, sin is still present. It still gnaws at me. What am I to do as a believer for those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who have taken the gospel from just a page in a book somewhere and said, no, I believe that, not just here, but I believe that in my heart. I've leaned back on that rope. I put my full trust in that. And again, as I walk this thing out called the new life with Christ, I still find myself struggling with the same hurts, the same habits, the same hangups that I wrestled with in the flesh prior to coming to Christ. Friends, is that any of you? Are any of you honest enough to admit that alongside with me, that those same things that called my name as a non-believer in the fraternity, chasing girls, drinking alcohol in excess, in the things that came with that, those habits, those desires of my flesh did not simply just go away. They didn't just leave. So what do I do with that? How do I walk that out? What am I to do on a daily basis with this freedom that Paul says that I have, even though at times I don't feel like that is the reality that I live in? Does that hit home with you? Do any of you experience that Tension in your life, that desire to return to idols that you know will not satisfy And your flesh, regardless, says, But I want to do that. Come with me. Let's do this thing that we used to do and revel in and enjoy. And then you wake up 24 hours later going, Oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It just led to pain and destruction in my life. Well, Paul's going to answer that question in verses 11 through 14. He says this, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. He says, even so, meaning, in other words, with an understanding of what has been done for you, then all the more, this should be your present attitude towards sin. My Bible says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. If you're reading out of an NIV, it's the word count count yourselves to be dead to sin. It's an arithmetic term. It simply means take the facts, add them up together, and at the end of it, consider what God is saying. You know these things here. But Paul says it's not enough to just know them there. You've got to take these realities and you've got to let them venture into your heart. You need to consider them. You need to allow this truth to infiltrate your heart and live here so that you will now live out the realities of what this teaches. Count them up as true and act on them. It's the first command in this passage. Again, in verse 6, he says, you need to know something. And now in verse 11, he wants you to reckon something in belief with your heart. Just as Jesus most assuredly died and rose for you, consider it a fact that you were with him on that cross. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Was Paul there? Was he at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? You bet he was. He says right here, he reckoned himself as good as dead in Christ's death. Folks, can you see that God sees you as a new creation? He sees you as righteous now. Because when he looks down on you, he sees the work Of Christ accomplished in your life and imputed to your account. That deposit has been made and it is done. And now in verse 12, he moves from the mind to the heart to now the hands. Here is the action that you and I are to take towards sin. You have to know something, you have to believe something, but now you have to act upon it. God has not called you, in a sense, to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. The fact is you and I have a new life within us. We have access to a new power system that we never had prior to conversion. We have access to tap into that if we will yield, if we'll be aware of this new power and its presence, which we will discuss in detail in chapter eight. But we've got to first yield to it. We've got to tap into it and we've got to allow that power source to work in us. And if we don't do that, that new power source is useless to you and I. So what are we to do? Here's your second command in this passage. Look at verse 12. Therefore, based on all I've said, which you know, what you need to consider, he says, do not let sin reign. Don't let it reign. It is not king in your life anymore. It was for a season, but it is not anymore. You need to not let sin be your master in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. What is the command here from Paul? It is to resist. Don't let sin reign. It doesn't reign, but you're treating it as if it did, because something happened at salvation that caused that relationship between you and I with sin to be forever changed. The gospel doesn't just save friends. It also makes us more like Jesus every day. And it begins with understanding this concept. As Paul said in Galatians 3, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit Are you now being perfected in the flesh? Do you think that God's gonna save you by the power of his spirit? He's gonna call you and draw you as he did in chapter three, that he's gonna secure you and do all of those things at a moment in time in our lives. And then he's just gonna let you go. And he's gonna say for the next 60 or 70 years of your life, good luck, figure it out. I'll be over here while you deal with sin in your life and temptations. Paul says to the Galatians, that is foolish. Do you think that he begun a work in you in the spirit and he's not going to complete that work with you in the same spirit? He says there's a new power source in our lives because of that. And, friends, if there's a concept in our Bible that has changed my walk with God more than any other thing in the Bible, it's this, this reality. So, I want to illustrate that for you. I need two volunteers. Okay? Yes, sir? In the hat? Ma'am, I'm sorry. Come on up. The hat, it messed me up. I apologize. That's that's a great way to start a new relationship with someone. My name's Shannon, by the way, so, like, I got teased my whole life. Uh, You're going to be my volunteer. You good? Yeah. Okay. All right. I need one more. All right. We got two right there. That was the the first I saw. All right. So, I need your help. Here's what we're going to (laughs) do. Oh, gosh, that's heavy. All right, this is you. It's really heavy. You got it? Okay. Your name is? Bree. Bree. And? Jenny. Jenny. Bree and Jenny. Okay. Jenny, this is you. Okay. You wear that really well. All right, and you come over here with me. All right, Bree. Bree represents... One king, or maybe we should use the word queen since we have two queens in our presence here. Bree was our old life. I want you to think about this idea in terms of these word pictures that are used in the scripture. There was a time as believers that we lived in this land underneath this queen, and she ruled the land. And according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 or 21, and a couple other places in our journey so far. The name of that king or the name of that queen whose life we lived under was what? We lived under sin. This is queen sin. Sorry, you got to kind of roll into this deal. So you're going to do a great job. Bree is queen sin. It is her new name. And she rules over a land called sin country. This is her home. And friends, the Bible says that all of us were born into this, that we lived in this place. And when this queen is there and she is a master over her entire land, what she says goes. Just like Coach Blakely, he was ruler over all that land. And I and you were all residents in this country. We all lived here. Not by choice. Let's let you put this down. Okay. But by change. I am a slave to her. She is my master. This is the imagery that Paul is using for you and I. Before we came to Christ, do you see this. And what do I do when Brie calls me? Sorry, Queen Sin. When Queen Sin calls me, what do I do? And she says, hey, Mike, we're going out today. Here's what we're going to go do. I'm not asking. I'm telling I am your master, and you will do my bidding. And by the way, it's not like I can just blame queen sin, can I? Because according to Romans chapter 1, those desires were already within me. Envy, greed, lust, all the things that my flesh wanted to have, she simply called those things out. And as being a slave in in sin country, I was forced to live underneath her rule and her reign, and I could do nothing to change that reality in my life. But I heard about a place. I heard about a place that was so far away, but word got back to me that there was a different queen that was out there that wasn't like queen sin, but was different, that was gracious and loving, And as Queen Sin, she or Queen Grace, she ruled over a place called Graceland. I think that's appropriate. And all the residents of Jenny's country, they loved living with her. And I wanted to go over there, but the problem is I can't. I'm a slave in this land. And as much as my heart desires to go over there, I simply cannot do it because I have a juxtaposition, I have an estate that is forever tied to queen sin. But what I heard was this queen is so loving and so good and so concerned about me. Do you know what she did? She bridged the gap that I could not bridge. She came over here and she freed me through her son. She loosened those ties and she broke the power of sin in my life that which would, I could not do. And she says, Mike, I want you to join me in my country. I want to adopt you as my son. You are going to live in my house under my reign. You will be my child. And I'm going to love you and accept you and call you my own. And you never have to go back to that place ever again. This is what the gospel, in a sense, has done in our lives. But you know what? As much as I love living here, she didn't die, did she? I was broken to the power of that sin. That chain is no longer attached to me. Yes, it's gone. But you know what happens every now now and then? You know what queen sin has the audacity to do? She picks up the phone and she calls me. She says, hey, Mike, do you remember when we used to go hang out? Do you remember when we used to go out and party? Do you remember how much fun that you and I had together? Why don't you come back over? And why don't you come visit my land again? And Do you know what I do every now and again? She's good, isn't she? <laughs> do you know what I do? Even though I don't have to, and I am no longer a resident here, I sometimes come and visit, and I participate in those things and I continue to do sometimes the things that I don't want to do, but I find myself living here. But there's a different position of my heart. There's a conviction now that says, I I can't live here. I need to return to the one who called me. And friends, if you find yourself living here, and you find yourself as a believer being completely comfortable here, with no conviction over that sin, it may be saying, maybe your adoption papers didn't actually go through. Maybe you. Think you made a decision to put your life in the trust in the fullness of the queen of grace, but you didn't. It was just maybe a, a verbal thing, but you're not fully trusting in that. Friends, what the gospel is telling us is that we have a newness of life. We have died to the power of sin, not the presence of sin because she is still very much there, but we have a new king, a new queen in our life who is good and righteous, who has given us adoption papers, has brought us into her family, and has now called us to live different. Do you see the picture of what Paul is trying to tell us? Okay, can you give it up for these guys, gals? Well done, both of you. Thank you, Jenny. All right, you can hang on to the tiara for a little bit. Now, can I get gut level honest with some of you? Some of you here, some of you here, have never experienced the life-changing reality of what Paul is trying to say here. You have never experienced a freedom from sin, because you have chosen to not to know, to not consider, and to not present yourselves as dead to sin, but alive in Christ. And you, as verse 13 says in chapter 6 of Romans, are not presenting your instruments, your body, as vessels of righteousness to this new king. You are stuck over here to the queen, and you are choosing to live over here because you're not yielding. You're not allowing God to have his way with you and to reign in your life. And the reason that so many of us find ourselves on a daily basis battling the continued presence of sin even though the power of sin has been broken, is because we won't yield. We won't lay our lives down at the foot of the cross and allow God to have his way with us. And friends, that's a tragedy. That's in a sense almost worse than someone who's chained up over here because they have no other option. We look foolish. When we go back to 6 a.m. practices as a freshman in college, you look at me and say, Mike, why would you do that? You could but why would you? And in the same way what Paul is saying is, you could go back here, but none of those things that this king has to offer ever satisfy. They may have brought you momentary glimpses of happiness, but long-term, these idols that you worship, they are empty, they are hollow, they are broken. And that king, that queen in your life is always gonna deliver those same goods. Nothing but death and ultimately destruction. So can you as a believer still sin? Absolutely. And let's be clear, will you? Yes, you will. You are going to have periods in your life where you're going to experience profound victory over things. But there's going to be times in your life, just as there are in mine, when I choose to wander off the path and I find myself over here, in the conviction of the Holy Spirit says, Mike, that's not what's best for you. That's not what I want for you. I love you. I know you. I accept you. Come home. Come back to me and walk with me. So friends, as we land the plane on this idea, Paul says in verse 14, sin shall not be master over you. You are no longer under law or under king's sin, but under grace. And the reason it won't master you is because you have a new master. God did not set you free just to be free. He actually set you free to be a slave to him, but a very different kind of slave, a slave of a wonderful, loving, caring master. We need to know this. We need to consider this and we need to present our lives as this, as if this is a true reality. So I want you to think about as we conclude the realities of all that's being said here. We were, at the beginning of this book, condemned, and yet God found a way to bring us back. And in bringing us back, he says we are secure, that we are his. This salvation that we have doesn't just stop there. This salvation that we have, this grace that we have received actually gives us a power to obey, and that obeying endures. This grace doesn't lead you to sin, it leads you to freedom. Christianity isn't just something that we believe in, some thought. It begins grafting into our bodies, and it creates in us a new identity. We are sons and daughters of the King. This is not a command. This is a fact. This is a reality of what God has done in our lives. Friends, do you see this? This concept for me has shaped my understanding of who God is and who I am in relationship to him, maybe more than anything else in my life. So as we go out of here today, as we head into so what time, and as we continue to talk about this, I want that reality to permeate your lives. But before we do that, let's sing, let's worship one more time and allow God's reign to be true in our lives. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the opportunity to respond to these truths. Thank you that you in your goodness broke the power of sin in our lives, that you freed us to a new and wonderful master in yourselves. Father, may that reality flesh itself out in our lives, where we see our lives as different, as changed forever because of the gospel in your goodness. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.